This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 3? Galatians chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then comes Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. Is the gospel sufficient? Is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is that enough for us? The Apostle Paul is the one who has written this letter to the Galatians, a church in Galatia. And if you're familiar with Paul's letters, he usually starts off with a greeting. And then he moves on to thanksgiving. He gives thanks to God because of this local church, this people. He's thankful for their faith, evidence of God's grace in their life. However, with Galatians, it's different. With Galatians, he starts off with his normal greeting. But then he goes right to the problem. And this shows us how serious this issue actually is. Paul tells them, I'm so astonished that you are quickly deserting the one who has called you and are turning to a different gospel. Which is no gospel at all. Paul was so serious, so concerned about the truth of God's gospel. Because it has massive implications. It affects everything. If you go wrong with the gospel, you go wrong with everything else. And so the people in this church, some of them were turning to a works-based gospel. What do I mean by that? That people were telling other people that you needed Jesus plus circumcision in order to be saved. You needed Jesus plus the works of the law in order to be made right with God. And there's a big problem with that. Once you add a plus to Jesus, 
You've lost the gospel. It's all about Christ. And so then Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 3, who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you or deceived you? How is it that you have believed in the gospel by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, and now you're turning to works? And so the, some of the Jewish people were preaching a different gospel. They were telling the Gentiles, those people who weren't Jewish, that you needed to be circumcised. You needed to follow the Mosaic law. And so Paul goes to the person that's going to be most helpful with this. That's Abraham. Because the Jews looked up to Abraham. He's the forefather of their faith. And he actually tells them that Abraham was justified by faith. It wasn't Abraham's works. In fact, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Have you ever signed up for your, your bank to get text alerts? Whether you've taken out money or you get direct deposit, your bank will alert you when money is put into your account. And so this is the, the, the concept here. Abraham had a negative balance. And not only did he get to zero, he had a surplus. It was credited to his account so that when God looks at Abraham, he sees Jesus. And so all of this is important when we look at division within the church. Because actually, a proper understanding of justification or being made right with God helps us to maintain unity within the body of Christ. So let's look at Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. This is going to be some, some heavy material here. So I'll, I'll try to summarize and, and walk us through this passage. Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, 
and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, that the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What is Paul talking about here? He's showing that the law itself, Mosaic Covenant, does not cancel out the promise that God made to Abraham. So it's important for us to be devoted to actually studying the Old Testament. The Old Testament is going to help us in understanding passages like these. In Genesis 12, God chose Abraham. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And he made a promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And then 430 years later comes Moses. So Abraham is in Genesis. Next book of the Bible, Exodus. Then comes Moses. And with Moses comes the law. And so what Paul is trying to say here is that the promise that God made to Abraham is not canceled out now that there's a law that one needs to abide by. Why? It's because God made a promise to Abraham. Let's continue. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So someone might be thinking, a Jewish person is thinking, then what, why the law? What's the purpose of the law then? And Paul says it's actually, it was added because of sin. Now, we have to remember that God gave the law to Israel as a nation. And God needed to preserve his people until the Messiah would come. And so that's why the law was given. God needed to preserve and protect his people because it was going to be through his people that the Messiah would come. And if you remember the story with, with Abraham, when God made a promise to Abraham, he was the one who sealed it. It's an interesting story in the book of Genesis where these animals were split in two. Abraham actually falls asleep. And God walks through And that's a picture of God sealing that if the promise or covenant would be broken, then God himself would take the punishment. But guess what? God is the one who made the promise and is going to keep the promise. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Mosaic law never promised or gave life. The reason why God gave the law to Israel was because he needed to do that in order for Christ to come. So when you read all the laws in the Old Testament and you're wondering, like, what is the point of all this? Why was it that Israel was devoid of precious bacon? Why was it that Israel couldn't do all these things and it was so specific? Because Israel was set apart. God chose Israel as a nation. And so in order to keep them and purify them, he gave them the law so that Christ might come. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So there was a big problem in the Galatian church. So much so that one of the apostles was not in line with the truth of the gospel. And and this is what spurred Paul to write this. What happens when there's a misunderstanding of the gospel and justification by faith is that it causes some people to think that they're better than other people. In Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul says this. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What's the problem here? 
Peter is a Jewish man. And he's hanging out and spending time with Gentiles. Gentiles are people who were not Jewish. The text says that he was eating with the Gentiles. And in the Old Testament, the Jews were forbidden from eating pork. But in Christ, you can have all the bacon that you want. And so Peter is hanging out with the Gentiles, spending time with them. But here's what happens. When Paul says the circumcision party, he's usually speaking about a specific group of people, also known as Judaizers. These were Jewish people who were saying you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. You needed to obey all the food laws in order to be saved. And so when these men come, Peter sees them, and what does he do? He steps back away from the Gentiles. He doesn't associate himself with the Gentiles anymore because, as the text says, he fears the circumcision party. And because of his hypocrisy, it leads another brother, Barnabas, astray and other Jewish men astray. Peter had a misunderstanding of what the gospel was about. This is why Paul tells them, if you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile, specifically you're eating pork, And now you don't live like a Jew. How can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? How is it that you can tell a Gentile brother in Christ that you should be Jewish like us? That's the problem. That creates division within a church. But what Paul says is that the gospel actually unifies. The gospel actually brings together a wide, diverse group of people. Paul says that it was the law that imprisoned everything under sin. The law held the Jews captive. It was a burden for them. They couldn't keep the law. The law was our guardian until Christ came. So when Christ is on the cross... 
and the curtain of the temple is torn. (laughs) Remember, only the high priest was allowed in the holy of holies. And then Jewish people could be a little bit further away. But the Gentiles, all the way back there. So when that curtain is torn in two, (laughs) everyone has access to God. Let me point out five implications of this. First one. That all of God's people are now adopted into his family. All of God's people are adopted into his family. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God. Both Jews and Greeks. They have the same status before God. They go from being enemies of God to being his sons. Look how the apostle Peter puts this in his letter Later on, 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's amazing, too, about this passage is that this was from the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. And now Peter takes this and he's applying this to the church, which is composed of both Jews and Greeks. They're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, one people of God. A family. And so you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. (laughs) Isn't it amazing that you can travel the world or perhaps travel Wisconsin? (laughs) You can you can go to other churches. You can meet other Christians and they are your family. That people all over the United States right now are gathering to worship Jesus. And we're all family. Although we may look different, talk differently, Speak different languages. We are all one family. 
And there's no middle child in the family of God. If you become a Christian today, you are as loved as someone who's been a Christian for 40 years. God is your father and Jesus is our older brother. And because of what he has done, all those in Christ are brothers and sisters. Second, your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so when Paul uses the word baptism, we have to remember that in the New Testament, someone putting their faith in Christ and then being immersed in the waters of baptism were closely tied together. Baptism is actually a picture of what has happened inside of you. Regeneration. This means a new heart. When you're baptized into Christ, that means you're saved. The waters of baptism is just a picture of that reality. How so? Well, Christ died and was buried. And so if you've been baptized, you have been dunked in the water. And Christ rose from the dead. And you too have been resurrected coming out of the water. And in God's providence, we're going to have a baptism Sunday next week. Where we will see brothers and sisters being immersed in the waters of baptism. And we can then encourage our brothers and sisters to live according to their baptism. Dead to sin and alive in Christ. And that when you witness this baptism, if you have been baptized, you remember your baptism. That when I see my brothers and sisters immersed in the waters and coming out, I could think back to when I was a little boy walking in those waters, being immersed and coming out again. And not only that, we get to partake in the Lord's Supper too. Both ordinances next Sunday where we are reminded of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. 
That at the Lord's table, no one's better than another person, but we all come to the Lord's table and partake of the bread and the cup. And so Paul reminds them that they've been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, that Jesus is their identity. They have now been united with Christ. And so Jesus becomes their identity. There are two extremes when it comes to uh, this passage. Some people who feel like they have been put down because of their ethnicity or color of their skin or have felt less than will think that the solution is to then elevate my group of people. is to then uh, pick up and raise up high my ethnicity. But what happens is then you elevate your ethnicity above Jesus. You elevate your ethnicity, guess what, above another person's ethnicity. And sadly, this has created much division in our nation. Much division in churches. Amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's solution is not to elevate your ethnicity. Your ethnicity, your social status, your gender cannot trump your identity in Christ. But the other extreme, I think, is to look at this passage and say, yep, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no male and female for all one in Christ, and then to say, you know what? I'm going to be colorblind. Where we say, I don't see color. But one of the problems is actually we do see color. A passage like this doesn't eradicate your ethnicity. It just properly shows you that Christ is first. Superior. Of most importance. I was born in Trinidad. And so being united to Christ doesn't erase where I was born. But Christ is my identity. I still have, or still am black, as you can see, it doesn't 
change the color of my skin. But Christ is my all. And so the solution is actually for us to remind ourselves who we are in Christ. Third, everyone has equal access to God. Everyone has equal access to God. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, we have to remember that the Greeks were far off. The Gentiles were far off. Seen as outcasts. Same thing with the slaves. And we have to remember, too, that when we see the word slave... In the Bible, we must not think about American slavery. It's not the same thing. People volunteered to be slaves to pay off debt. Some of them did. Male and female. Females were diminished, sometimes seen as less than. But with Christ, everyone has equal access to God. There is level ground at the cross. The Father loves each of his children dearly. And so we can't recreate division within the church based on ethnicity or social status or political affiliation or gender because we're actually all one in Christ. And so this roots out pride in our hearts. Sometimes we might think that we're better because of the color of our skin. What education I've received because of my gender. There is no cause at all in the body of Christ for us to elevate any of ourselves above anyone else. Some people look at this passage and think, well, there's no male and female. And so male and female roles in the church, at home, should all be equal. But the problem is, is that this text doesn't address roles in the church or at home. This text addresses our status before God. And like I said, it doesn't eradicate or erase the fact that you're a man or a woman. What it does show us, though, is that both male and female both have access to God equally. And not because of their gender, but because of what Christ has done. Fourth, God doesn't play favorites. 
God doesn't play favorites. This is a theme actually throughout all of scripture. It's amazing to be reading the scriptures and to see this over and over again. God does not show partiality. God does not play favorites. Why did God choose Israel out of all the other nations? Because. That's it. Because. Because he wanted to. Not because Israel was great. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us because they were actually the smallest nation. So God chooses you not based on the color of your skin, your education, your gender, anything like that. God chooses you because he wants to. So we should be the most humble and grateful people. Fifth, you are united to one another. Paul says, if you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So not only does Christ break the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Greeks to reconcile us to God, but true racial reconciliation is between brothers and sisters in Christ. So that we, as this local body, are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united to one another because we belong to Jesus. And so we treat one another accordingly. We find our hope and strength in Christ alone. And so we can love one another. We can be patient with one another. Kind towards one another. Hospitable towards one another. Encourage one another. Rebuke one another. Because we love the same Savior. So if you're in Christ, your worth is not in your ethnicity. It's not in your social status. It's not in your education. It's not in your political affiliation. It's not in if you wear a mask or not. Your identity, your worth, is in the one who has given you a new identity. Christ, the one who has broken down the division and barrier that once held groups separate, he has now brought them together as one. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who has radically changed us and transformed us by his blood. I pray, Father, that you would help us all to 
grow in our love for one another. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be devoted to the scriptures, that we wouldn't look elsewhere for answers or solutions, but that we would come to your word. Thank you for your gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. May Christ be in our hearts, our minds today and the rest of this week. Give us the grace, Lord, to grow and to trust you more. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.